Hello, I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager, and welcome to In Conversation With, the podcast series that delves into the world of financial services and brings you face-to-face with some of the most notable figures in the industry. Listen as we discuss topics that are currently facing the industry and hear from visionary CEOs to disruptive innovators as we bring you a diverse array of voices and perspectives. We'll explore the challenges they faced, the lessons they've learned, and the insights they have to share about the ever-evolving landscape of financial services. I'm Lois Valley, Chief Reporter for Money Marketing, and for this episode, I am delighted to be joined by none other than the lovely Nick Elston. Uh, Nick is an inspirational speaker on the lived experience of mental health, and I saw him speak at the Institute for Financial Wellbeing's conference back in May. Um, and when I saw him speak, I just thought we have to get you on the podcast, Nick, and luckily you agreed, so here we are. Um, so thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for your kind words. I'm going to take you with me everywhere I go now. It's an amazing introduction. Thank you. <laughs> I'll introduce you everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so, yeah, do you want to start off maybe telling us your story um, and telling us a bit about how you got to where you are today? Sure. Uh, so I guess that the the unique element of what I do is that I'm not solution-focused in the mental health space, so I don't coach, I don't counsel. Um, and for me i focus on the engagement piece based on my own experiences that you can have all the initiatives and engagement pieces that you you ever need but unless you get the engagement nothing changes and i think that came from my own experiences of mental illness so in my childhood um i had and developed obsessive compulsive disorder or ocd um and as i got older um, it morphed into something called generalized anxiety disorder which is gad which is statistically more common but less commonly known than ocd um so essentially it's obsessive compulsive anxiety um and through education, and I know a lot of people that are tuning into this will understand this, that you could be very successful and high performing, fueled by high anxiety, high nervous energy and extreme pressure that it's not a new spot on you by yourself, but your environment as well. So from the outside looking in, I was successful, but for me it was survival. Um, as I got older into my kind of corporate life and client facing roles, always in those kind of situations being around people, um, the that's where it started to really take hold. There, I was fueled by fear and paranoia and that kind of the fear of missing out, I guess. Um, interestingly, always in work earlier than I had to be, always away later than I needed to be. But interestingly, it was not driven by anybody else other than myself. Um, we kind of were in a race with ourselves that way, I guess. Um, I was constantly mask wearing, trying to be what other people wanted to see in me trying to be what situations demanded of me, but really f- afraid of showing myself. Um, and I think also I wasn't prioritizing any time to recover or recharge. So that culminated in um, over a decade of burnout. In 2012, I had a breakdown. And it was at that point I started to use speaking initially as a therapy. Uh, but then I started to share about my own experiences in a professional environment And what I found was, despite what you hear on the popular media and social media, humans are essentially good. Go figure, who knew? Um, (laughs) Humans still actually want you to succeed if you only share with them what you need. And that's the bit that really stood out to me, I guess. 
that by me sharing my stuff with people, people started sharing their stuff with me in professional environments. Um, and talking about mental illness in 2012 was a big guy. That just didn't happen. And two things really happened. The first thing was I was massively overwhelmed. So I could never be a coach or a counselor, definitely. Um, but the second thing was I felt deeply saddened, actually. Why is it that we all have our adversities and challenges and the things that we experience in life, but we don't feel worthy of reaching out for help? So is it education? Is it inspiration? Is it motivation? Or actually, as I found out, in the in the vast majority of times, it's self-esteem. We don't value ourselves enough, but we'll be the first to help our clients, our family, our partners, our friends. And that's the bit that I started to focus on. And the rooms got bigger. The audiences got bigger. I started to travel the world doing the stuff. And the rest, as they say, is history. But that's what's brought me to your virtual door today. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Brilliant. Um, just, yeah, so you, um, I don't know if people maybe know, uh, this isn't really that relevant, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, if people know about OCD maybe more, because I don't know, so many people seem to say, oh, I'm so OCD and just sort of throw it out there and use it as a thing that if they just mean they sort of, they're a bit perfectionist or something, but it's actually a really different Thing, it, isn't is, it? it is and it's, it's um so ocd obsessive compulsive disorder i think it's much trivialized due to things like channel fours ocd cleaners or like you say i'm a little bit ocd it doesn't kind of work that way it's a very painful frustrating debilitating condition i actually developed ocd after witnessing a family accident and that's not for today but the point is very valid very often it's a severe reaction to a very severe action so it's the ultimate pursuit of the uncontrollable that you try to control everything so i started to check gas switches in sets of three locks in sets of three light switches in sets of three and if i didn't do those things the perceived outcome would be i would bring harm or even kill my family which sounds highly irrational but rationality goes out the window when obsession and compulsion and things like intrusive thoughts are thrown into the mix. And I think that's the reality of OCD. Um, how it then changed into generalized anxiety disorder, which is statistically more common, but less commonly known in OCD, um, that's the bit that really intrigues me because maybe we even encourage people to be highly anxious. We educate people to be highly anxious, especially in the professional world, as, as you and your audience will know, some of the people around us that are the most successful by their own definition are fueled by anxiety, but you can only run for so long until you stop and therein lies the problem. That's where I try to bring lived experience to the conversation around mental health and mental illness. It's not the answer. But lived experience to me is the perfect vehicle to drive engagement to the answers, to give people permission to reach out for help. Um, but we do need to understand that there are cultural dynamics at play here as well. So I do a lot of work in the US and South Africa and other places around the world where in the UK, we kind of been brought up to believe that self-care is selfish. So you'll feel guilty when you put yourself before anything or anyone. So you don't. And you run again a little weaker tomorrow. But we absolutely need to be more selfish. And if anyone needs somebody to blame, blame me. <laughs> I've got broad shoulders. <laughs> I'll take all the emails from the partners out there. <laughs> be more selfish. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's that's a great message and definitely one that I need to take account of. Um, <laughs> but um, do you think it's also a bit of a case of, you know, the Brits are sort of, being renowned for this stiff upper lip thing and you know don't show emotion and it's kind of built into our culture in a way I know it's not the same for everyone in the UK but I think it's very much from the outside you know British people don't show emotions we don't really 
yeah. necessarily connect with each other. So, yeah, no, I see what you're saying about the cultural yeah, differences. There is that, but it also comes down to, to race. Uh, speaking to other uh, people from different racial communities, there are also barriers within that. There's barriers within gender. There's barriers within sexuality. There's so many other barriers. I think the commonality is that how this affects our sense of belonging. I mean, this is a big subject, but the kind of the yeah. to, to basically if if you've not always felt comfortable or had the platform to share how you feel for anybody, then that takes a lot of kind of changing, a lot of kind of overcoming of that kind of conditioning element. So therefore, you don't feel you deserve to have the space to to share, or you've not always had the, the platform on the stage to share. So therefore, there are, there are obstacles to overcome. And I think that's why I've started to use, or say started, I've been doing it for years now, but that's why I use public speaking not just what I do, but also in terms of coaching other people to tell their stories so that it starts to become that transformation through changing the narrative. Because I believe you change a narrative, you change the experience, which is why the programme that I launched in the prison system here in the UK 18 months ago has taken off so well, because what I'm doing is changing their narrative to change the experience towards the end of that sentence. And I do the same in the education uh, system as well. That's the bit that we need to change. It's not really about how we talk to other people. That's more of a, a reaction to how you're feeling or how other people are feeling if they're talking to you that way. It's about how you talk to yourself. So actually coming back into we have all the answers we ever need, it's just about asking ourselves better questions. And that's what I see my role as, as sowing the seeds or giving people the ammunition to start to ask better questions of themselves. Mm. Yeah, no, it's really good. Um, so I was going to wanted to talk a bit about, because um, I know you sort of touched on it at the Institute for Financial Wellbeing Conference, financial wellbeing, unsurprisingly. <laughs> yeah. um, I know, obviously, I well, in my experience and of talking to people, the sort of awareness of mental health and wellbeing has increased, I think, since probably the COVID pandemic, but maybe was already on the rise before that. Um, mm. And so too has financial well-being. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on why this is. Yeah, actually, it's, it's a thought from, uh, uh, as you know, but for the for, for the context of everybody else, I'm not from the financial space myself, but I do a lot of work in the financial space. And the bit that really fascinates me is this link between our money and our mental health and, and trust and rapport. So, as a financial planner, for example, if you have a client that trusts you with their money, understanding that that could be one of the biggest factors that forms part of their well-being and their mental health at any given time, especially right now. But the byproduct of that is if they trust you with those things, they're going to trust you with everything. Because no longer do we have a familial relationship with our GP or the medical profession generally. I'm an old guy, I can say that, though. I used to have a relationship with the TP. But, um, so we don't have that relationship with a counsellor by default with a relationship or a therapist. So therefore, as a financial planner, as a financial person helping somebody else, actually, you'll end up being a counsellor to your clients. But that, for me, is, is what financial well-being means, is meaning that you have the trust and rapport of people, clients, and if they trust you with their money, they'll trust you with everything. So you're going to end up having big, heavy conversations with people about big, heavy things. And this is where it comes back in about being certainly selfish, but also safeguarding conversations. So if somebody shares with me as a non-financial person, but you'll have the same conversations, 
if somebody shares me how they're feeling right now or if they're experiencing a challenge right now, a, a mental challenge, then I'll say thank you so much for sharing that with me. As you know, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a coach, I'm not solution focused. But I'll support you as much as I can. I'll signpost you to the help that could be really good for you right now. Is that okay with you? And actually bringing them into that kind of conversation. So if your conversation with your client goes down the route of mental health, well-being, asking that question means that they've got the buy-in. They don't expect you to be the savior for everything. They don't mm. expect you to become the healer in that sense. But you can start to build a playbook of resources um, that you could be able to signpost effectively. So you protect yourself, you safeguard your client. Um, that means you're doing the best you can as a non-solution focused person. For me, that's my bit of financial well-being is, is um, I guess, educating money people to understand what a relationship people have with money if they're not from that world. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's really, I, I just find the connection between money and mental health really interesting. It's not really something... It seems like there's a that it, that's really obvious that there would be a connection there, but I don't think it's something that people necessarily take into account. It's like one of those sort of if you know, you know, like it's really obvious. Yes, of course, there's a connection between mental health and money, but yeah. unless you sort of say that, I I wouldn't have thought that before I joined money marketing and started having these sorts of conversations necessarily. Um, but you know, there's the saying, "Money can't make you happy." Some people yeah. agree, some people disagree. <laughs> yeah. um, but it also, I think it works both ways. Like it's, you might think, oh yeah, if you don't have very much money, if you're in a lot of debt, then you probably are going to get depressed and then it might sort of turn into a downward spiral. But yeah. there are millionaires who are probably very unhappy. So yeah, it, yeah. There's, there's different sets of challenges. And I think you're quite right. When it has a big impact and it can work positively as well as, as an effective planner in this example, you can give people happiness or make them achieve what they want to achieve so actually you can give people this too but being fully aware of that connection so therefore personal and professional development are impacted by your relationship with money even your personal value so one of the biggest learning points i had from my relationship with money as an entrepreneur so when i, when I first started out i was speaking as a passion i was speaking as a hobby but then when I went self-employed doing this, I realized the mortgage doesn't get paid on dreams and missions. Sadly, I did check, but it doesn't. Um, so when somebody first said to me, how much will you charge to come and speak at my organization? It was not a commercial conversation for me. It was emotional. How much am I worth? What value am I bringing? And, and actually, I grew up not very well off. So to me, £200 is a lot of money. But if I quote the £200, it won't be seen as good enough. So there's this whole relationship between personal value and money as well and that can also impact your personal and professional development too because like you said if you don't feel that you have the ability to aspire to whatever you want to aspire to then it does kind of limit your beliefs and it limits your aspirations and your goals and i think set to the backdrop of the past few years of a pandemic as well one of the biggest impacts on professional life generally was it did affect our ability to create goals to aspire the way that we used to um and therefore, that's a big challenge, especially in your world where money people are fantastic at kind of at kind of putting things out there and project focused and setting goals and timeframes and kind of guesstimations on things. And all of that wasn't possible because literally the world was changing month by month. And um, so I think it's a big impact per personally and professionally, but also it's linked to your personal value, too. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. When you were just saying that, I was thinking back to my time in lockdown, actually, as a freelance journalist a new freelance journalist. I'd never done it before. And it's it's really weird 
having to someone says oh how much do you want to write this article and I'm like literally I have no idea luckily <laughs> my um dad well he just retired a couple of years ago but he was a freelance journalist as well so he could massively mm. help me so I sort of took this article idea to him and said I was thinking you know 700 pounds and he was like no I charged 2000 for that and I was like wow mm. I was way off yeah. So yeah, it's it's a really interesting lesson in putting value on yourself and and what you do, I suppose. It is. I, I think we're not comfortable with, uh, as you know, you I spoke about this at the the conference that we're not comfortable with talking about money largely, especially outside of the money world. So those conditioning elements of growing up, for example, that you don't ask your uncle how much his new car is and or you don't talk about this kind of stuff. And that's, so if we're educated not to talk about money, and that's a big subject, so I think that there, there's such a gap in the education system generally where we need to talk about not just kind of financial well-being, what that means to people, because it's a very subjective term, but also just money generally. I, I, don't, I didn't have any education coming through around how to handle money. So as soon as I got my first paycheck, I was down the pub and and suddenly it was gone again in a week-to-week kind of basis and it just doesn't teach you very good habits in that sense so I think there's a big gap in education too yeah definitely no I totally agree I never had any sort of financial education at school again I'll bring up my dad again hope he listens to this (laughs) Um, he massively taught me about budgeting and stuff not that I have always taken those lessons on board, but he was there to support me. But at school, no, there was never anything. And at university, it was all just obviously my degree, but nothing on, not that it would necessarily be at university. I think it probably needs to start in schools, really. Mm. Um, but do you, so I don't know if this is really a question for you, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Sure. Do you think, how much of a role do you think financial advisors have in educating people on money then? Um I, I think that's maybe as a, as a sorry as a, as a sort of wider thing as well not just their clients it's quite yeah. a, a big area so if i liken this to kind of what i do that and i'm quite open about this this isn't like top secret or anything which would be rubbish if it was because i'm saying it on a podcast but there we go <laughs> um, but for me it's um if you like it's what i do so I've, I've created an ecosystem in my business so i charge my corporate clients a lot of money comparatively mm. to, to, to the less less um, education, for example, which has less budget. So the corporate clients subsidize my work in the education and the prison system, which don't have the same budgets. Then collectively, that subsidizes the work that I do in care leavers and domestic abuse charities and lots of organizations that I donate time to support to. So overall, the ecosystem means that I have successful business but ethically and morally i'm still trying to achieve the same thing and i'm still contributing and paying it forward in a way that i always started out doing so that it just feels like i've created something and i think financial planners can do that actually you absolutely need to pay your way in life to be successful financially and to create opportunities for yourself and to look after your family and everything else but maybe you can start to build this ecosystem where that pays for you to donate your time to do a talk at a school or to do some youth work that you're going into youth groups talking about this stuff. And I think there's just a real win-win situation that is a big kind of paying it forward kind of cycle. But if people struggle with that, build it into your system, build it into the ecosystem around your business and what you do. Mm, definitely. Um, I was talking to Chris Budd, you know, um, yes. founder of the Institute for Financial Wellbeing the other Chris. day. Yeah. Um, and he was taught, he, he has this really, so he um, talks a lot about philanthropic planning, mm-hmm. which is um, 
obviously clients with loads of money who want to donate to charity but don't don't necessarily know how much they should be donating or where they should be putting it, then financial planners can have a big role there. And he, let me just see if I can get this right, because he's told me a few times the stat. Um, So I think it's um, ultra high net worth people in, I think it's the world. Sorry, Chris, if I get this wrong, you'll you'll have to go back and listen listen to the podcast with him to get the actual stuff. it was like, what What do you think the average donated charity from ultra high net worths is per year? I'll get you to guess if you haven't already listened to his talk. Nick. I have no clue. Do you want to guess? I, I wouldn't. Oh, so an average figure, on average. I would not do it to start, old? genuinely. So when, when he asked me, I guessed £50,000 a year, yeah. but it's 400 And it's not probably because people don't like with loads of money don't want to donate to charity it's just because they don't know how to go about it so i think that's a really interesting area maybe where financial planners can help as well it is absolutely i mean even on on an organizational scale so if any of your audience work for large organizations if you look at things like i've clients like lloyd's bank have introduced kind of like um days in a diary where people can go off paid and do community work you can kind of point it that way as well so i think that it needs to just suit your world where you're not kind of um you're not creating it as a chore for yourself in that sense but you're bringing it into your world so maybe it's at your your children's schools or your or the children's social groups or youth groups i mean even in terms of you look at groups like and i think this is a really good thing anyway if you're looking to kind of test your public speaking is Rotary, WI, and social groups generally, they all have families and they have children and they have relatives that by bringing your message out there, not only are you, from a commercial point of view, you're kind of promoting yourself as a as a key person of influence in your space, but also the payoff is that you're educating people um, without any money coming back at you. So it's a great kind of like pay it forward way to do things. Mm. Yeah, no, that sounds really good. Um, another, So I was at... Um... I just keep name dropping here. <laughs> I was at next. Well, I, you were there too, Nick. I think I saw you there at Next Gen Planners conference yes. um, in June, and uh, there was a really good panel on financial psychology, which I just found so interesting because I don't, again, like well, it's similar to the money and mind, mental health thing, but money and psychology more generally how it connects, and it's just something I would never have considered before I joined Money Marketing and started writing about it but um there was this whole thing about setting financial goals and the reasons why people want a certain amount of money and it might be you know so they can buy a yacht and show how much money they've got or it might be so they can buy a yacht and take it out the weekends when their children come back from university and stuff and i think that's a really interesting thing that financial planners can maybe take into account the reasons why their client wants to save a certain amount of money that's an interesting one because I think there's, there's a quote that comes in the coaching world, the thing is never the thing, that the thing that we're striving for, or sometimes the thing, the challenge that we're facing is never really the problem, is never really the thing that we're striving for. There's an emotional reason behind it. What do you want to achieve by doing that? And yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think psychology generally, but especially linked to money is a fascinating subject. Mm. And I need to read up more on that as well. Yeah, no, it was it was a really good one. Um, I nearly studied finance, uh, 
financial. I nearly studied psychology at university, but I went for English literature in the end, which, as I said earlier, before we started recording, put me off reading. So <laughs> that's a shame. <laughs> that is a shame. But maybe it would have put your psychology, so you've still got that to come, so that's good. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Great. Um, So um, we probably should wrap up soon, but I did just want to ask you one more thing before we go. Absolutely. Um, And that is what's sort of the biggest piece of advice you'd give then for a financial advisor who wants to help their clients improve their financial well-being? We've obviously already touched on some things, but is there Mm. sort of a big piece of advice you'd give them? Yeah, I think it's whether it's for the advisor themselves or whether it's for the client that they're trying to to support. Um, If there is a a challenge or a block or an adversity of any description, um, asking the question, like fact-checking, this thing, is it actually fact or is it the story that you're telling yourself about that thing? In the vast majority of times, it's the story you're telling yourself about the situation. It's never the fact. Very often, it's the fear of something which is the block, which is causing the problem. On on a on a bigger level, if you look at the, I have clients in Ukraine who are dealing fantastically well with the conflict going on right outside the door right now, um, and I have clients in Poland who are not dealing with it as well because they have the threat of conflict or or invasion. And that's an interesting one. Like I said, it's the fear of something causes far more anxiety than the things in front of them. We can deal with facts but we don't deal very well with fear. So sometimes asking that really valid question, is the thing that's in front of you fact, or actually is it the narrative, it's the fear behind it on a very minor level, and I'll leave you with this, um, <laughs> but very comical level. If you've ever had a row with your partner or a close friend by iMessage or text message or WhatsApp, the three dots causes far more anxiety than the actual end of that conversation, I guarantee you. So oh, yes. avoid the three dots in life, go for closure. That's my finding, final wisdom. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> oh no, I, yeah, I get that totally. Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me, Nick. I've really enjoyed chatting to you today. Oh, likewise. Pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. We do hope that you enjoyed it. Please do keep up to date with all our new releases via Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date with all our new content published on the Money Marketing website, as well as our print edition, Money Marketing Magazine. So make sure to subscribe. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. See you next time.